Welcome to Theodisc, a podcast for theological discussion that will encourage and deepen your faith and understanding. I'm your host, Kenny Innes, and in this episode, I'll be talking with Tobias Siegenthaler about how a narrative approach to reading the scriptures can alert us to the skill of the authors, to themes and links that enhance our understanding of the biblical meta-narrative, and to fresh ways of expressing the gospel in our context. Tobias holds two masters, one in theology and the other in biblical languages and literature, and is currently working on his PhD at St Andrews, which explores the narrative connections between Luke and Genesis. He also teaches a class on reading the Gospels on the WTC Grad Dip program. Tobias has an infectious enthusiasm for the scriptures, so get ready as we launch into our conversation. Tobias, welcome to the Theodisc podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. And it's really good to be able to have this conversation with you today around a narrative approach to reading the scriptures and maybe how this can lead us into fruitful understandings of how the literary skill of the biblical authors and particularly of the gospel writers can help us orient our stories in the story of Jesus. And you're working on your PhD at the moment along those lines. Maybe you could briefly tell us about your thesis and what you're working on. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm happily always talking about my PhD. Yeah, I'm working on Joseph. And um, actually, um, I, I don't know if you remember, there is a Joseph in the Bible. He's a dreamer. He is the son of Jacob. And then he is brought to Egypt and all that kind of stuff. Now, actually, I'm talking about two Joseph. Did you hear that this sequence of narrative is not actually not only happening in Genesis? Maybe your mind has just gone gone immediately to Genesis, but the same sequence is happening in the life of Jesus at the very beginning. And what most people don't realize is that there is so much going on there. And this is kind of what initiated my thoughts. I realized in, in Matthew, it's very visible. You have Joseph. His father's name is Jacob. He dreams. Then you have these magi coming from the east and they bring gold, myrrh and frankincense, just like the Ishmaelites that are coming from the east, carrying these same treasures, etc. And then they take Jesus, respectively, Joseph to Egypt, and then they come back from Egypt. So you have that all packaged in there in the first few lines in the Gospel of Matthew, and you're asking yourself why. So this is how my PhD uh, kind of research started. Is there more to Joseph in the New Testament than we think? And yes, I came to find a, a trove of treasures. And so I'm happy to share with you today about that. Great. Hopefully we can dig into that, that treasure chest later on. We'll talk a little bit about Joseph in particular. Um, uh, but before we get started on the conversation proper, I wanted to ask you um, three questions that I'm asking all of our first-time guests. So don't, I'm not just singling you out. It's everybody who comes on the podcast. Um, and it's just um, three questions to get to know you a little bit better. And these questions are about things that you return to. So that is, we all get excited by new things that we discover, um, but we also have constants in our life that we return to for maybe comfort or enjoyment, you know. So I'm going to just ask you these three questions. Here we go. Ready? What is a, a book that you return to? 
Wow. Yeah, of course, as a biblical scholar, I have to say the Bible, which is true. I return to it every day, but that's probably not the question here. Um, yeah, I one one uh, book I really return to is um, uh, Bonhoeffer's Ethics. Uh, and it, it is not a book that he, he uh, finished or published himself. It was uh, published after his death. And it, it just has to amazing essays on on how he imagines what christian ethics mean and they kind of put everything upside down and it is it, it keep, i keep going back to that um, especially the first essay um uh, christ and the reality um which is just i don't know what the title exactly is in english but um i think christ the reality and the good and it's just one of the most uh, inspiring essays to to rethink ethics in the light of what christ has finished and has done and is one one text i always go back to um i could mention many more but let's stay with that brilliant uh, bonhoeffer's not a bad choice that's pretty good um a food or a meal that you return to um a meal i return to uh, as a swiss i have to say cheese fondue right i i every time i go back home i i crave cheese because um where i live I, where i currently live in uh, israel there is a very uh, cheese is there but it's very very expensive it's about the, the three times the amount i would pay in switzerland so when i go home i eat good uh, cheese fondue and it's good for us um, in the UK to know that cheese fondue is not just doesn't just belong to the seventies um, in the UK. That's kind of a big thing here. Where people had cheese fondue in their house, but actually, there are people in the world who eat it it's still. <laughs> That's true. Yes, yeah, it's like still a national dish in Switzerland. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Um, and what about a place that you return to? Um, one of the places I've really come to like, especially in the UK, is Iona, and I just think it's a really interesting place and having studied in uh the, the in scotland i returned to iona every year because i just thought it was such an inspiring place so yeah yeah a deeply spiritual place still um, it is yes. brilliant thank you that's great Okay, let's move on to what we're really going to talk about today. So I thought we might start by thinking the idea of scripture as story has become more popular maybe in the last 10, 15 years. But I think we may want to talk about what a narrative approach to scripture really looks like and maybe contrast it with the method that many of us read scripture by. Um, we've been taught in our, our churches and seminaries, which is more of a historical approach. So maybe you can talk about the contrast between those two approaches. Yeah, maybe uh, before I venture into that, I want to just uh, give a caveat. Um, sometimes when people hear like narrative approach to the scriptures and stuff like that, they're like, wow, you, you want to chuck all that historical research out of the window. And I, I that's not my intention. Uh, even though I do a lot of narrative work, I have to acknowledge that um, in like for, for instance to do lexicography we need to do re historical research we need to find out how did uh, the Greeks understand this particular word and how did the Septuagint understand this particular word so we need historical research and in a way uh, the historical research of the last two centuries has has really 
laid a good ground, has has given, has done good groundwork for us um, to come back to these scriptures and read them narratively again. But and and also, I do think that um, ultimately. Uh, history is never chucked out of the window. You always have to come back to these questions. Okay, having said this, I do think, and I, I'm very much in favor of reading uh, scriptures narratively, um, because it allows you a very different way of, of getting into the story. Um, yeah, so I I, ha I studied in, in Switzerland, and I studied the historical approach for, for uh, six or seven years almost, uh, I wrote the master's thesis on Job. Although there already, I tried to say, okay, let's let's look at the text first and then ask the historical question second, um, because I think that may also actually help us understand some of the uh, the textual features in a better way. Yeah, Mark Powell in his book about narrative criticism, he talks about that the historical approach is more like uh, approaching the scriptures like a window, which would kind of take us back to what's going on at the time that, that the text is talking about. But that the narrative approach is maybe more like a mirror where we kind of look directly at the scriptures and see it reflected back into our lives. And I, I thought that was an, a simple but an interesting way of, of describing it. Mm, mm, yeah, I, I agree. Um and and I think um, I, what what I'm interested most when we read narrative is we're interested in the final form of a text, and that doesn't mean we don't acknowledge that there is a historical kind of development. But maybe when we stumble over something, over a textual feature, the first place we go to is not ask which layer is here next to each other, and 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 these kind of uh, uh, scribes did a bad job at doing the copy paste but i would first ask why why does the author want me to stumble here what what is he trying to trigger because oftentimes they make you stumble so that you will reflect and, and sit back and say oh what's going on here what is he trying to do here and so if we just front the historical question first we may miss that because we just say uh, uh, this is a feature that just seems foreign in the text. Probably it's a later edition. And there's nothing wrong to suggesting that. But I, I think I have often seen that when there is a feature like this that really irritates you or you think like it, it kind of doesn't fit into the flow of the text, it is often because the author is trying to, to alert you and say, hey, there is something here going on that you need to wake up to. There is a link here. It's often like a hyperlink we have in the uh, world of internet. We have these thousands of hyperlinks. You can click on it and you get to another text, which will explain you what's going on here. And so the historical questions, they still come into view then because they, they, they we then ask, so why did these people interpret their historical situation through the lens of an earlier story? Why did the people, when they were taken to exile in Babylon, why did they use story patterns from Joseph to tell that story? Well, they're saying the same thing is happening again. So we want, we, we, and, and then also they hope for the same redemptive end with the Exodus. They, they, with that is also enclosed already a, a hopeful perspective. So they're trying to say, oh, the same thing is happening again. So if we see these links, we actually understand their story better. 
Yep, and there's maybe a move there from from thinking about the biblical writers, not just as recording historical fact, although they were doing that in a sense, but also thinking of them as authors, that they are actually fashioning and shaping the text in a literary sense to provide these allusions and, like you say, linking back to things in the history of God's people. Yeah, they, they are very much poets as well. And I think it would be helpful for us to, to read these texts sometimes more like how we read the Lord of the Rings with seeing all these interlinking features and saying, oh, this is, have you seen this feature where Gollum is trying to get the ring? And, and, and what could this mean if we, if we see what the meaning of the ring is later in the story? So if you do that, there is a lot, uh, there is a lot to gain. And, and I, I do think they are also trying to kind of lure you into a view where you even view your whole reality through that lens that you you look at the world and you ask yourself where is this story where are these stories repeating and taking place in my life and i think what they also do as well which is interesting is they pull on these themes and motifs that are happening throughout the scriptures and then they'll also subvert them so it's not just in the similarities but it's also in the contrasts that we see the point that they're trying to make oh you think it's just like this story well here's where there's a difference too that's right. That's exactly right. And one example I always like to give is, um, you know, this little detail in the Gospel of Matthew, when it says that Pilate's wife could not sleep and she comes to Pilate and she says to him, uh, please, this guy, he is innocent, like free him. You, you, you're supposed to kind of uh, take him out. This is wrong. What's happening here? And well, this is just a nice feature if we look at it. But if we know the textual tradition, we should know that when there is somebody, a ruler or a king who cannot sleep and the hero of the story is in a crisis, usually it leads to a, a happy turnaround. Let's say Joseph is in prison. Pharaoh has a bad dream, bad night. And Joseph is brought out of prison. We have the same with Daniel, same pattern. The, the uh, king cannot sleep or has a dream also in that um, story, Daniel is brought out and he is he is honored. Um, he, he's brought to second in the kingdom, just like Joseph. We have the same with Esther, where the king cannot sleep and he goes and reads in his records. He remembers Mordecai and then Mordecai is elevated and, and honored. And so when we have this story pattern in our minds and we come to Pilate's wife, and we come to this crisis point where we say, oh, we, we, we think this is really going downhill. Jesus is going to be killed now. And then we have this little, little uh, event where she says, I couldn't sleep. I had like a bad night. We think, oh, wow, this is the moment where we're going to see a turnaround. This is where uh, God is going to intervene. And to our shock, it's not happening. And so... It just enhances this shock of the gospel that, wow, we thought the Messiah looks like this, a hero who comes with a sword, but the Messiah looks like this, a guy who is crucified on a pole. Um, this, this should shock us, but it can only shock us if we know the tradition of the story, if we, only, if we know the scriptures. Yeah, yeah that's good. Well, maybe we can um, pull a little bit from some of the work you've been doing with your PhD and look at an, at an example of how we might 
read the Gospels narratively with this sense of allusion to a previous story. So I know you you know you mentioned already you worked quite a bit with, on on Joseph and Jesus. Is there maybe an example that we can pull from that to to kind of look at this this method of reading the Bible? Yeah, um, I have so many examples. Let me think about which one I should take. Um, I, I, maybe we can we can look at two examples. Um, one example is a curious example. Also, again, in the Gospel of Mark, where you have this uh, man running away naked, and they see uh, in Gethsemane when they come to to uh, take Jesus, uh, um, uh, they see this man who who has a garment on. And they seize his garment and he runs away and leaves the garment behind and runs away naked. And you just have that story there. And you're asking yourself, what's going on here? Um, why, why, why would they care to tell this here in, in this uh, particular place? It doesn't seem to make sense or it doesn't give any kind of, exp- it doesn't, there is, no explication why why this is happening here um but what is interesting is that this little uh, feature of somebody being grabbed by by his garment and then running away of course should remind us of joseph and okay now this seems to a lot of scholars when you present this to them is like oh it's just probably a coincidence but if you know second temple literature you know that this very story of potiphar uh, Potiphar's wife seducing Joseph and grabbing him is being repeated time and again in other stories. And, and then once you see that, you you become alert. I, I, I will just give you uh, one, maybe two examples. One example is when um, in, in, the, in that uh, crucial moment in the story of Esther, where Esther tells the king that Haman has been plotting to kill her and her people. You remember how the king then leaves the room and you're you're thinking like, what's going on? A lot of commentators say, this doesn't make sense. Why is the king at this crucial moment leaving the room? And when he gets back, it says that Haman was on the couch and he was kind of pleading for his life. And, but... Of course, he is laying on a couch and uh, there is the queen and there is this guy. And then the king comes back in. And then in the Greek version, it's very strong that he accuses him basically that you're trying to rape the queen, that you're trying to take the queen. So there, there the language that they use is, is often or is, is referring back to the Joseph story, where now Haman is portrayed as the guy who is trying to uh, not uh, unrightfully uh, rape the queen or, or get a hold of the queen or even the throne. That's what it, what the implication is. So if we know this pattern, um, or in the story of Susanna, another addition to the book of Daniel in the Greek text, we see this pious woman, and then there are these elders who day by day are looking at her. This is using the same phrase like in in, uh, Joseph, the Potiphar's wife, this day by day, talking to Joseph, trying to seduce him. And they look at her and they're trying to make a plan how they can have intercourse with her, et cetera, et cetera. So if you know this and you get to the gospel and this story is repeated again, then it's like, oh, this is another of these Joseph moments where you should, should see, oh, this guy 
is now going down into the pit. And not only into the first pit, where Joseph is thrown into the pit by his brothers, but into the second pit, the darker pit, which is in Egypt, is in exile, which is basically the end of the earth, and you are now in the pit. It's a, it's a synonym for, for death. And, and often in the Psalms, this pit is in parallel with Sheol, with the underworld. It, it is a symbol of death. So this guy, it's happening again. And so when we have this happening, the gospel, it should just alert us. And another example is just a few uh, lines further in the narrative, but in the Gospel of Luke, we have this uh, little narrative of the two thieves being crucified next to Jesus. And one of them says to Jesus, remember me when you are in your kingdom. And of course, there are a lot of songs about this and stuff. But if we look into the Greek Bible, the song that they would hear uh, would be something else. They would remember Joseph being in prison and saying to the cupbearer, remember me when you are again with Pharaoh. And now you, th you say, okay, this is just one thing. But no, there is more to that, right? Because Joseph interprets the dream of this guy, of this cupbearer and the baker. And he tells him, after three days, you will be lifted up. And there you have the baker and the cupbearer. You have bread and wine. And now you go back to the gospel and you see, oh, actually, if P if Jesus is cast into the image of that cupbearer, into the role of that cupbearer, then he might also, after three days, come out of that pit. And he, other than that cupbearer, he will actually remember that thief and he will bring him out. And lo and behold, we go, even just before the crucifixion, Jesus in Gethsemane holding the cup and saying, Father, if this cup can pass. But then, as we know, he keeps it, he stays with it, and he carries it. And you have, again, bread and wine here. And so you see this kind of interlinking uh, imagery. And again, this is one of the stories that is being repeatedly used by Second Temple authors. So that if you know that tradition, that this Joseph being thrown into the pit in Egypt is a story that is being used. Well, you see it in Daniel, right? Daniel is now also thrown into a pit and actually the king wants to bring him out. It's interesting that often the foreign king actually is quite, uh, are quite nice guys. It's usually the other people around the king that are conspiring to kill the hero. So this guy is now thrown into a pit and now this pit is even worse. This pit has lions and there is a stone put on over the mouth of that pit. And so when we come to this whole story with Jesus and he is thrown into the pit again and they are rolling a stone over the mouth of that grave, we should also, all these images, they should come to life. Daniel should come to mind. Joseph should come to mind. They're pulling all this in to tell the story of Jesus because according to Luke, all the scriptures talk about Jesus, as he says on the road to Emmaus. Yeah. So this is kind of a, a bit of a teaser of what I'm doing. Yeah, that's great. So my kids, they're growing up. So I'm introducing them to movies that I watched when I was a kid. So they're kind of watching them all. And it's almost like I am training them in the history of cinema and they're able now to spot themes. This is like what was happening there. This is, oh dad, this is kind of like this. And even now when you get to TV shows like um, like Stranger Things, which are pulling very clearly on imagery and we know what's, what's going on. 
And um, I think it's interesting to to think about reading the scriptures, you know, in that sense. Yeah, yeah, I think cinematography gives us a good example, or also a DJ, right? A DJ who who takes an old record and he makes an amazing remix, and everybody in the in the party is raving because this is just he's making the the music even better. He is taking something new and something old, and he's putting it together. And I think that's exactly what these authors are doing. They're telling the story with the ink or with the sound of the old. They're recomposing it so that it will make a proper symphony. Yeah. And maybe that helps us in this, um, to come to this idea of the unity of the scriptures. And going back to some of what you were saying earlier on about um, there are historical issues that have to be dealt with and things that we need to explore but it seems to me that this narrative approach is a bit more of an immediate and an accessible approach i hear people quite often saying that they don't know enough about the scriptures to properly understand them and it feels like this approach might open a door for people to come immediately to what's happening in the text and and pursue some of those hyperlinks and between stories yeah, I think that's right. And, to, and as you say, you can you can do this with children. And I, one of the most amazing things to do is actually uh, do it with a multi-generational audience and say, OK, I'm going to read you a story and I'm just going to ask you, what do you hear? Are there any other stories you hear? And you will see that often children are the first ones to say, oh, I remember this guy. It sounds like, because they have this kind of talent to 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 make associations. And of course, Yes, yeah, sometimes we, we then have to go back as scholars, we have to go back and say, okay, do these associations, do these analogies or, or do these connections, do they make sense? Is there really something happening or is was that just my mind? And I think part of the training over the years is getting attuned to how these authors are working. Because at the beginning, you're just kind of uh, in the dark, kind of looking for, for elements. And, and in the beginning, it's really hard because you... You're looking for for parallels or trigger words that are connecting and and you just don't. Find, but with time, just like a musical ear is attuned to certain melodies and to certain sounds, you, you become attuned to the text and it will become easier. And you approach a text and you say, there is a strange word here. I call them trigger words. There's a strange word here. What is this word doing here? And And as you follow this lead, you say, oh, this word is only appearing in three other texts in the uh, Greek Old Testament. So, oh, so what may, might be going on here? Is there more to this? And now you only have three texts and you can kind of go through these three texts and see, is there anything else in any of these three texts that creates a kind of connection here? Yeah. And I think that's interesting because we, we perhaps have become attuned to the idea that when you come to, let's say, a text in the Gospels, that there is one meaning, that there's one meaning for this text that we that we can uncover. But this approach, at least it feels, gives us options. And I wonder if you can speak to how those options are are important in us finding our stories within the story of the Gospel itself. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I think you are right. We, we we kind of come to these texts with a modernist mindset that we think there is one truth here 
that that we have to kind of dilute and then or not dilute the, the other the, the other way around that is being dilute we have to just kind of um uh, uh, pull it out of the text make a proper exegesis and bring this stuff out and then we have it uh, we extract it um but i think the jewish tradition goes a very different way they the jewish tradition assumes that these texts are divine and therefore they're like ultimately always multivalent they're like they have they have more meaning that we can grasp because uh, there is so much in there that god has put in there um of course we could now talk about the the dogmatics of of scripture here and but this is not the place but i think it's an interesting idea that for them uh this is is very clear that these scriptures are multi-layered and multi multi-valent and uh, they're they're there is like a polyphony and polysemy going on. There is, is a, a lot of meanings and a lot of connections. And how can it relate to our uh, own lives? Yeah, I think that's really the goal. I think to to ask this question. Um, and I re I read a, 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 um, from from a book of Brian Sand that just came out a few uh, I think last year or a few months ago. The book is When Everything's on Fire, Faith Forged from the Ashes. And he says it so beautifully when he talks about Joshua. Do we just have to read the story of Joshua as kind of a, a story of uh, ethical cleansing? And in that way, it becomes a very uh, bleak uh, story and a very uh, difficult story to deal with. Also, if we think that Christ is the embodiment of, of God and how God deals with his enemies. But but he's, he simply says this here, and I just quote from that book on page 143 is can walls of hatred come tumbling down can injustice be hurled into the sea you remember the egyptian army being hurled into the sea can the goliath of racism be overcome yes and one of the reasons i know of these possibilities is that every morning when i sit with my bible i enter a world where these things can happen all the time or where these things happen all the time and I think that's the point. It's like the question is, how do we now transpose this into our world? Also, as ministers of, of, of preaching, it's like, how do these stories now speak to our issues? Where are the walls that we are walking around? And where, the, where are these uh, boundaries that have not been a, that we've not been able to pull down? And how does God show us a strategy of walking around those walls? And bring these uh, boundary walls down. And also maybe that entails uh, uh, killing of enemies. But these enemies may be enemies in our minds. The demons that are, are torturing us or are torturing the inhabitants of our land, of our country or, 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 or of my village. What are these demons that are torturing them that need to be uh, taken out, that, that, that we need to tackle? These would be the ways that you can now make these texts fruitful and how the early church made these texts fruitful because they were convinced that all these texts ultimately speak about Christ and how Christ brings salvation. So all of a sudden, if you have this Joshua story, again, you ask yourself, how is Christ coming to the world to bring these walls of separation down? How is he coming to bring salvation? Oh, it's not by killing others, by, by, but by suffering his sacrificial death that's how he brings it down so that rahab and her people can be brought into the people of god and into the genealogy of jesus into the uh, into the family tree of jesus's family 
And that's where now the beauty of the gospel comes to shine through these scriptures, through these very scriptures that maybe we were struggling with at first. But through this way, yes, it has to be. I think from the New Testament, it's very clear that there is a Christological lens to, to the way they read the scriptures. And I think they are trying to encourage us to do the same. Yeah, maybe the narrative of the Gospels is the epicenter of that, where we, we find the uh, the biblical story translated through Jesus um, in ways that we can share with others. And I think quite often we get stuck as maybe apologists for scriptures rather than helping people to find how the story of Jesus intersects with the story of their life and the hope that he can bring to them. And I think the approach that you're describing today is really fruitful um, in that regard. Well, Tobias, thank you for for taking the time to speak to us. I do hope you'll come back in the future. I'm happy to come back. You just have to send me an email and we have to find a time, which is uh, easier said than done, but we will do it. <laughs> I really appreciate you. And um, um, hopefully as you continue to work on your PhD, we we'll look forward to to seeing the fruit of that as well. But um, cheers for being on the, on, on the show today. And I hope our listeners have gotten um, a lot from this. Take care. Thank you so much. Bless you. Bye-bye. Well, who knew that the narrative critical approach to scripture could be so interesting? Thank you to Tobias for such brilliant guidance for how to read the Bible as story. Next time, Kenny will be joined by Dr. Bob Ekblad, who is a bit of a legend here at WTC. Bob has been a lecturer at WTC for over 10 years and has written a number of books, including A New Christian Manifesto and The Guerrilla Gospel. Kenny and Bob will be discussing the hot topic of Christian nationalism and how it affects not only those who live in the USA, but also us here in the UK. The Theodisc podcast is part of WTC, a theological college that seeks to partner with the church through equipping and sending the whole people of God. Our innovative hub model allows you to study on any of our part-time programs without leaving your work or ministry. Come and find out more at wtctheology.org.uk. Thank you for listening to episode four of Theodisc. Join us for episode five when Kenny and Bob Ekblad will be taking on a very hot topic. Bye for now.